0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Welcome to Wanna Be, the podcast that takes you from where you are now to where you wanna be in 30 minutes or less. Happy Black History Month! I'm Imriel Morgan, founder of Content is Queen, a podcast community that specializes in empowering and amplifying underrepresented voices, specifically women, people of color, and LGBTQIA+ people. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Wannabe's focus is to help you take consistent action to build a successful life and career in the creative and entertainment industry. But this month, we're going to spend some time looking back as well as forward. And this time we're going, we're going a little bit forward. Today's guest is writer, stylist and consultant, Aja Barber, whose work deals with the intersections of sustainability and the fashion landscape. Aja has amassed a platform of over 200,000 Instagram followers who look to her for insights, education and knowledge on what's happening in the world of sustainable fashion and consumerism. Aja's work builds heavily on ideas behind privilege, wealth inequality, racism, feminism, colonialism and how to fix the fashion industry with all of these things in mind. That is so dope. In today's interview, Azure shares what it's really like to grow your platform and the pitfalls that come with sudden growth. Azure reveals what it takes to take down fast fashion and what you need to do to be on the right side of history. We also get into the intersections of fast fashion from colonialism, climate change and consumerism. You might recognize that from her book cover if you'd go and cop it. We got deep and this was not an easy edit at all, let me tell you. So let's waste no more time and just get straight into it. Who did you want to be before you became who
2: you are today and why? I would argue as the child, I desperately wanted to be liked. That was what I wanted. Now I realize in order for the right people to like you, sometimes the wrong people don't like you and that's okay. Not everyone is going to like you. And so now I feel like the right people like me and that's really good. But yeah, as a child, I just I just wanted to be invited to parties and sleepovers and stuff. And so I think that arguably set me into the path of like fashion because as a young kid, I began to notice that my clothing wasn't the same as my peers and maybe that's why they were excluding me. In what ways was your clothing not right? I grew up wearing a lot of hand-me-downs for my sister. Like my mother is arguably the most sustainable person I know easily because even before, like now everyone's like secondhand hand-me-downs, yada, yada, yada. Even before it was trendy, that was who my mother was. Mm -hmm. I always wore hand-me-downs for everyone. Like if there was a child that was older than me, that was a close family friend, I have some of their hand-me-downs. As a matter of fact, on Facebook, there's a picture of me and one of my friends who's, I think like three years older than me, Posted a picture of herself, and I was like, "I got those dungarees when you were done with them." And she was like, "Really?" And I was like, "Yeah." And I tagged her in the photo, and she was just laughing. And they were like pink. It was really cute. It was a cute little kid's outfit. I grew up being dressed in hand-me-downs, but the the ones that were really not great were like my sister's hand-me-downs because there's a five-year age difference between us, and we are children of the eighties, teens of the nineties, mm. the styles were so different during that time period. The sweater that your sister wore in 1987 was going to get you made fun of in 1992. (laughs) Oh dear. It was very clear to the outside world that you were wearing something that was extremely dated. And so... I never felt like I had the right clothing and my mother was not going to go and buy me a $20 t-shirt from the Gap because she thought that was a ripoff. And so I wore a lot of clothing that was hand-me-downs. I wore a lot of thrifted stuff. If all the girls in my grade were getting stuff from the limited two, I didn't get a sweatshirt from the limited two until I was in the seventh grade. And by then that trend was done. It it was that basically. That's so interesting because
1: often, I mean, there's lots of people that just don't engage with fashion at least in the big way obviously Mm -hmm. we're all engaging with fashion and clothing uh, because Mm -hmm. we all wear clothes so we have to engage but it's so interesting I recently did like a guest host or guest spot on the BBC podcast radio hour Mm -hmm. and we looked at fashion and beauty as these trends which seems so frivolous because they are like misogyny and means that it's like women's pursuits and therefore not yeah inclined.
2: yeah yeah that's what it is with the fashion industry <laughs> everyone considers it frivolous meanwhile it's trashing the planet and yeah. building billionaires it's
1: literally like this really big thing but there is so much emotional attachment to clothing because it's such a big part of our identities and it's so it's so sad that it that happens even when you're so young you want to fit in and it's such a big part of like How I can show that I'm part of the group and from such an early age is like down to what you wear and how you present yourself. It sounds so sad that you were a little bit ostracized just because your clothing just didn't match what was expected or,
2: or wanted from the kind of dominant group. How did you cope with that? Oh, it was really hard. I would argue my wardrobe was the first fights that I started to have with my mom. Like normally, you know, you wait until you're a teen. By the time I was 10, I was just like, don't you understand? Don't you? Like, and she just... She didn't get it because mm. she had a very economically challenging childhood. In her eyes, we lived like princesses. I think I coped by basically being very good at being a loner. I think when you're that age and you begin to sort of see the way social groups work, you just sort of retreat inside yourself. But it makes, it, it makes you very good at being okay with your own company.
1: I think I can relate to that actually on some level because I, I was mostly a shy kid. Uh, My Mm -hmm. mum was very into fashion, actually. She wanted to be a designer. She used to draw. She used to cut patterns. She's very Mm -hmm. good at sewing. My family... like good seamstresses so we had like a very unique <laughs> it definitely wasn't like fitting in it was just a very unique fashion sense but very much yeah. my mom's vision that she thought was quite forward-thinking and chic so I always admired that for her that she always had these aspirations bigger than herself but it did mean that like, I mean I, I don't know what it was about my childhood but I definitely felt like it was me and everybody else and I think in so many ways I still kind of carry that with me. Even into my adult age, like I work in podcasting, which feels like it's having a moment, but it's still this niche within a niche that I operate in. Have you carried that forward or do you think actually now you've branched out and become a social butterfly? Oh,
2: will save. My friend Sophie, we always talk about how like sustainable fashion is nerd prom. Mm. Like we are not we're not the fashion A squad but we're the squad that's going to hopefully save the day. I always joke that the party's over when I get invited and now I'm starting to get invited to fashion shows. And I just think it's hilarious because (laughs) in actuality, the fashion shows need to stop. Everything needs to slow. And I'm like, yeah, you guys are inviting me, which means that this is definitely done. (laughs) Like this is something that we need to like phase out. And I don't mind, but also even existing on Instagram, Instagram. I think when I first showed up in the Instagram space and my platform began to grow, I was a bit of a turd in everyone's pool because let's be <laughs> honest, <description>? the, the, <laughs> it's true that the energy that Instagram runs off of and the ways in which people traditionally get paid on Instagram is from selling fast fashion mm-hmm. and being the person that's like, hey, not only does this make me feel weird, but it's actually terrible for the planet and terrible for the garment workers. Let's just say not everyone wanted to be my friend at first. Now everyone pretends like they wanted to be my friend because that's totally the nature of social media. Mm -hmm. People that you followed for years that wouldn't follow you back wait until you have almost a quarter of a million. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I so appreciate your work. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't follow me for years. So that's (laughs) kind of weird, right? Exactly. I still feel... On the outside, I just feel like everyone can't help but to see me now. So it's kind of like, ah, better pretend like we're friendly, even though I didn't follow this person for a long time. (laughs) It still feels like a high school cafeteria. That's so interesting. It's like cliquey, but in a different way. So at 50,000 followers, I had gotten to a spot where I felt like I really knew my community. Everybody knew my boundaries. And I think you have to have boundaries on social media. Otherwise it's a free for all. Mm -hmm. And it can be a very problematic, harmful space if you don't moderate. And if you don't get everyone on the same page, one of my boundaries, I don't talk about brands on on my grid posts because if the problem is overconsumption, and Instagram algorithm runs off of that, the minute you start tagging brands, unless you're actually telling a brand About themselves. I don't tag brands because people will literally show up to my space and be like, Now where do I shop? Now I know this. And it's like, That's not the point. No, exactly. The the point is actually, we should all be shopping less. So I don't Mm -hmm. engage in that on my social media because honestly, I don't want to give out advice to 200,000 people about where to shop. I don't monetize my social media in the same way as other people. So that would not be fruitful for me in any way. Let's just be honest. I'm here writing Monday through Friday, mostly for free. I've got one sponsor, one. So I'm not going to just show up and be like, oh, buy this everyone, because that's the problem. So I have this rule, don't tag brands unless it's incredibly relevant to what we're talking about. And people will show up and do that. And people within my community will be like, hey, this is not a space where we are giving out fashion advice. Like we're talking about the issues. Yeah. It's a self-governing thing. It's really great. But every time you get a new wave of people in, it's like you're having a party in, in your house and you've got all your friends, and everybody's like chatting and being like, Ooh, you know, eating hors d'oeuvres. And then all of a sudden a rowdy bunch of people just run in and oh, start no. like screaming and eating all your food and drinking all your foods and trashing your house. That's what it feels like. Oh, wow. That is yeah. so vivid and sounds awful. It is a real analogy. And Most people, and and I tell my own readership this, I always say, when you follow someone new on social media, treat their space like it's a living room. Mm. If they're letting you in, enter quietly. Listen more than you talk. Spend two weeks watching how the engagements play out there before you jump in. I would love to
1: get onto finding your voice and actually how you got into sustainable fashion in the first place. Because, I mean, obviously it was this massive part of growing up for you that you're wearing these hand-me-downs, you hated the experience. How is it that you just didn't go the complete other way and become a massive shopaholic? <laughs> <laughs> I did. That's exactly it. And then you I, then you and, turned
2: and, the corner. What what and, was the change? And that is why I tell people I'm never going to sit from my perch and be like, I'm better than all of you because I'm wearing linen. You know what I mean? For me, I think what it came down to was I always liked the fashion industry from being ostracized as a child. I actually grew a real interest in fashion and it wasn't just about material possessions, but I also couldn't drop that materialism because consumerism is pumped into our brains from a very young age. And there was a part of me with fast fashion that knew in the back of my head that it this, this is not good. And I knew it for several reasons. I knew it because I've always been someone who's interested in how things are made. So in my early twenties, I got a sewing machine for my birthday one year. And I used to be that person that would go into certain stores. Say there was a store called sociology. I would go in, I'd see a dress and be like $300. I could make that. And then I'd go home, I'd go and buy some fabric from the scrap pile And I'd go home and I would attempt to make the thing I saw. And I would be like, wow, it's really hard to make clothing. This (laughs) looks like crap. For every sewing project I've made, like one out of three was was wearable. And the other two were trash. I understood how much work went into producing clothing because I was this crafty person who was making crappy clothing and realizing that it's hard to... Every time I would go into a fast fashion store, I would just be like, how do they make that so cheap? I don't understand. And it's like, well, they're exploiting people. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. And then one summer I volunteered in a local charity shop. And this was probably 2009-2010, mm-hmm. and that summer I began to understand that this is an ecological disaster. Because this charity shop, every day I would come in and there would be bin bags piled to the ceiling of clothing. And I knew that we couldn't sell it all. And I would try and go through and try and open as many as possible. And I would come back and the next day it would look like I had done nothing. We are one of thousands of charity shops. And I just began to think to myself, if every charity shop in America looks like this, Where is all this going? Mm. Fast forward to me learning about Cantamonto Market in Ghana and being like, oh. So, for the last 20 years, we've been excessively buying clothing and dumping it on the global south to the point where it is absolutely polluting that part of the world. It is on the beach, it is in neighborhoods. There are people that live on top of rotting mountains of trash, basically. It's caused the municipal dump there to fill up years before schedule because of all of this filming donation. But yeah, in the Global North, people are like, it's okay, I donated it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Volunteering in that charity shop, it actually turned me off. I would go to the mall and just be like, what's the point? It's all going to be somebody else's problem one day. And it was good because I probably needed that wake up call. But Mm -hmm. this was like 2010. And I began to really be like, yeah, you know what? I got to quit this. So I started to really sort of taper what I was buying. Eventually it just, the urge just went away in general. I started to get more into brands that I felt that I could really believe in. And when you're not buying 68 items a year, which is what the average fast fashion consumer purchases, you actually have more money in your pocket to spend a few nice items. Everyone needs to understand we have all bought fast fashion and the people that sustain the system are not poor and working poor people. Even if you feel poor, you're probably broke because poverty is systemic. And I know people at every income level. And I just find that middle and upper class people will say that they're poor when in actuality they mean broke. And like, they're only saying it in a very particular situation. Just Having to listen to people who were way more privileged than I was justifying participating in a really bad system, it kind of makes me a little sick to my stomach, but I think a lot of people do that. And so one of the things I do with the book is I break down America's one of the the biggest fast fashion consumers in the world. And I break down the wealth of America so that people understand who's buying the fast fashion. Mm -hmm. So let's just squash that myth. So working poor and working class people in America account for 3% of America's wealth. Wow. I actually would have thought that would have been so much higher. I'm not going to Oh I, yeah. Like now significantly it's, it's, higher. It's a big portion of the population, but it is not the wealth there. Working poor people actually account for negative 1% of the wealth. So, I mean, people are like You can't critique this system. You Just say your classes that you don't like poor people. I'm like, it's not poor people who are buying the clothes. That's so wild. (laughs) If we zoom out even more and we're looking at the planet, 50% of the planet lives on $5.50 a day. And the majority of garment workers can't afford to buy the clothing they make. So it's a very small percentage of the planet who can sustain this system. And that's the percentage that needs to probably think about making some changes in how
0: we're doing things. Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: When you talk about the changes that need to be made, who is it that's making those changes? Because is it the consumer changing their habits that forces the brands to change their ways? Or does it need to be instituted at like a, a government and policy level? Or is it a bit of both?
2: We need both. We need all the things. So here's the thing right now, the biggest corporations in the world have bigger economies than some of the countries that they manufacture in bigger budgets, bigger So who is going to regulate these massive corporations if consumers don't start to care? Getting this sort of stuff in front of lawmakers and getting them to care is going to take a change in consumer and citizen opinion. Mm -hmm. But if everybody's just okay with it, it's all hunky dory. Nothing's going to change. You know what I mean? When it stops being Really cool to do like whole videos and buy loads of fast fashion, then the tide starts to turn on how much power some of these industries have. But at the minute, I would argue that social media and just general acceptance of this stuff is keeping it very powerful. Mm. So we have to change the conversation.
1: I guess the the thing that popped into my mind as you were talking, which I was mostly disheartened because I was like, I do not feel optimistic that that's going to change anytime soon. But are you optimistic that those changes and that conversation is changing at a rapid enough pace for some of this damage to at least be undone or at least to stop it in its track?
2: Let me put it really real with you, okay? If we don't stop producing at this rate, we will run out of planetary resources. And so we won't be able to keep going this way for the rest of our lives, basically. So either people are going to wise up and be like, I don't need all this clothing. What am I doing? Or we're going to face shortages. As we are hurtling towards climate emergency, water shortages are in our future. Okay. It takes 5,000 gallons of water to grow the cotton for one t-shirt and one pair of jeans.
1: You know, it's bad when you can't even comprehend what 5,000 gallons of water even
2: looks like. And that's the problem. <laughs> when we look at these numbers, the human brain has a very hard time with it. That's why I have a lot of visuals in yeah. there because people should be good and mad. Like these companies are using up the resources that we need to stay alive. So if we have companies, for instance, in 2018, I think H&M declared that they had $4 billion worth of unsold stock, right? If wholesale, if wholesale, right, all that unsold stock, say say it cost four pounds for one pair of jeans and a, and a t-shirt. Each, each item was four pounds. That's one billion items, okay, of t-shirts and jeans. Say it was one billion various t-shirts and jeans that were unsold, but you know that it takes 5,000 gallons of water to produce a t-shirt jean. Multiply one billion times 5,000. That's the gallons of water that we've just seen wasted in one. Calendar year. Whether or not people decide to change, climate change is going to change us all. So I would really like to warn people that look, we can either mitigate now or we can just run full steam ahead and just wait until all of our resources are being used up by these consumer markets. That's so wild. Oh, wow. I mean, (laughs) yeah, we're going (laughs) to, I
1: feel like I kind of knew these things because I've. Been, cl- I guess I sit in climate curious space and have done mm-hmm. a couple of projects like The Mother's Invention. I, I helped work on that and did a lot of their social media. So I was kind of like introduced to it quite rapidly and knew that things were bad. And then I followed The Slow Factory and Celine mm-hmm. Simon, who's incredible at what she does. She is one of my
2: dearest friends.
1: Oh, she's just fantastic. She's a gem.
2: I think generally people have a hard time quantifying the damage that's being done here, and what mm-hmm. these numbers look like. But I think if people really understand what these consumer industries are doing to our planet, and ultimately you and I, because unfortunately, I don't feel like people have othered people in the global South to this point where we have a hard time identifying with that situation. You know, it's one of those things where people feel very comfortable saying, that's a good wage in that country. And it's like, okay, would you want to make three cents an you know hour? I mean? That's colonialism. That is colonialism. Oh, but right they're there. doing fine. At least they're employed. Like yeah, That is the legacy of colonialism is thinking that somebody in another country should make less money than you. Somebody in another country should should be grateful to sew your clothing and do backbreaking labor and work with dangerous machinery because they live there. And like that country is where we get all of our crap from. And yeah, I think that as we start to see more of the impacts of climate emergency, I think that it will naturally become uncool because we're going to be like, the planet's on fire and you're doing a Shein haul. (laughs) The worst. (laughs) The worst. (laughs) Oh,
1: God. Oh, that's just, yeah. I feel like it's so bleak. And I guess my my question from that is, I feel despondent and despair. Whenever you do climate messaging, because I had to do climate communication, mm-hmm. like climate justice work means that you're constantly, you're aware of all of these bad and terrible things and the stats are just awful and mm-hmm. climate emergency. And so you're kind of towing the line of having to use levity, humor and really bouncy language to so that people don't fall into it, right?
2: Yeah, <laughs> I do that in the book. I like to think that the book is a very hopeful thing. But additionally, what I would say is I really want people to investigate Do you even like this system of fast fashion? If you're someone who's participating in it, tell me what you like about it. Because I always challenge people to take a week off or take two weeks off. I think when you tell people like, you can never buy fast fashion again, you're not going to get them. That's just never going to happen. But if you do tell someone like, I dare you go a month without buying. What I generally find is that people will come to my platform and go, Yeah. When I first started following you, I was like, I love fast fashion. I'm never going to quit it. And then I started to read and then I started to think about it. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a week off. I'm going to unsubscribe. I'm going to unfollow. I'm going to not go in the stores. I'm just going to take some time and really give it some thought and try and wear my clothing. And one week turned into a month, turned into six months. And now I'm just looking back at myself thinking, what were you doing? Like <laughs> The thing that people don't understand is like, financially, if you are participating in fast fashion to the tune of buying one item a week, like I said, 68 items a year, you're actually spending a lot of money. And I know that there's a lot of reasons why our generation does that. Our economy is screwed. I have lived through how many recessions in my lifetime since I graduated? We have no job market. We can't afford houses. So naturally, I understand. I am very empathetic to the fact that when you feel like life is giving you nothing, you're like, might as well go buy five new dresses because <laughs> I can't do anything else. I get it. What people don't understand is you're really pissing away any disposable income you have on a system that isn't actually serving you in any way.
1: Mm, I mean, I, my disposable income
2: went on food. So I feel good for you. Moderately that that about is it. nourishing you. That's <laughs> yeah. good. But for people that are buying those 68 items a year,
1: that's wild. if
2: you tally up your receipts from last year, and I did that one year, I was making next to no money and living with my parents. Because once again, how many recessions do I have to live through? (laughs) And I had given a 10th of my annual salary to one store in particular. And I didn't even realize I had done it. And I was so mad with myself. And so There's incentives in there for you as well as a citizen, as a consumer, not just planetary stuff. But I can say as someone who is full steam ahead with this system, I save a lot more money now. I have a lot more nice stuff that I really get to enjoy. That's a
1: good point. I think having not shopped, and this was mostly by force slash Marie Kondo-y. I can Mm -hmm. owe a lot to Marie Kondo for sorting my life out. If it doesn't spark joy, I don't buy it.
2: And the thing that gives me hope is I have never had a single person who follows me, message me and go, yeah, you know what? I quit the fast fashion cycle and I miss it so much. So I went back to it. I've (laughs) never gotten that before. So
1: you're like the Marie Kondo of sustainable fashion.
2: (laughs) Oh my, what high praise. She's amazing. I literally do get people messaging me every day and thanking me. Like that's what it comes down to. And so what gives me hope is knowing that if people can just take a break from all of this mm-hmm. and start to really look, peel back the layers of the shiny system, they never want to go back. And so, if we can just get more people listening and trying and thinking about that, it's a so much better way to mm-hmm. live your life. I love that. <sighs>
1: Oh, Aja, you were saying so many good things. I have so many
2: questions.
1: (laughs) We don't have the time. We should do a part two. We definitely do need to do a part two. What is the best advice you've ever received? And what's the worst advice you've ever received? It trips everyone up. It's the only thing that trips people up.
2: (laughs) Best advice I've ever received. People are going to judge you no matter what you do. So you might as well do what you want. Love that. But I also think that can be incredibly selfish because... At the end of the day, climate change is coming for us all. So doing what you doing whatever you want is harming the planet, you know, those microfibers <laughs> will also be in your water too. Just know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the worst advice, you should lower your standards with the people you date. Your standards are too high. Oh my gosh. <laughs> when I lived in the DC area, no one was trying to date me. I'm not anyone's cup of tea there. I just I'm not like for some reason, people in this country, I think get me. They just do Londoners get me. And so people kept telling me that my standards were too high when I was dating. And it turns out they, they weren't, I just wasn't going to meet the person I was going to be with in my hometown. And that's okay. I just wish someone had said, listen, you enjoy your own company. So just stick with what you're doing. And eventually the right person will wander into your life, but you're probably not going to meet them there, there, there. (laughs) And don't beat yourself up because the people that frequent there, there, there are not looking for you. You're kind of quirky.
1: Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think any woman should lower their standards. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, I think I'm going to have to put out the extended cut of this interview because this snippet was not giving everything it was supposed to give. I mean, we got so deep and I can only hope that it's got you thinking and hopefully acting too. If this is the first time you're coming across Aja Barber and her work, I highly recommend you go and follow her over on Instagram at Aja Barber and respect her boundaries. Observe before you engage and also please do go and buy her book consumed because that will help you really understand the situation we find ourselves presently in and it will also give you some context some history and a little bit of everything to help you really contextualize the danger we are in if we do not put a stop to the madness that is going on in fast fashion. I hope this half an hour has made you think, reflect, and contemplate on what your next step should be. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends or on social media. If you're a podcaster or thinking you can do what I do, please do check out contentisqueen.org, where you can access free resources, talks, and news as well as joining our community. That's content That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Bye. This is a Content Is Queen Production, hosted by me, Imriel Morgan, edited by Joseph Perry, sound design by Amber Miller. Music and sound effects are from Epidemic Sound.